This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for being with us again on your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. To make sure you never miss us, tap or click subscribe, or simply look out for new episodes every Thursday. Now, this year marks a hundred years since the founding of the Irish Free State. We use that term because it wasn't given its constitutional designation of Aire, the Irish language word for Ireland, until 1937. So, how did this free state come to exist? Who were the key players? And how does this story relate to the present day? Joining us to discuss the subject are our two guests for this episode. I'm Cuivenich Arved. I'm a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Sheffield. And I'm Howard Spencer, senior historian, Blue Plaques English Heritage. Now, Howard, you're on the podcast for a particular reason, aren't you? So could you explain what the Blue Plaques connection is to our podcast? Well, uh, yes, I'm, I'm here really to talk about the way that the scheme has marked the relationship between Britain and Ireland, of figures involved in that, and possibilities of things that we might uh, do in the future, perhaps, as well. Yes, yeah, so you'll be mentioning a few names who've got blue plaques in London that people can potentially visit. That's or... right, and a few who, who may get them in the future. Okay, fantastic. We'll touch on that a little bit later on. But to bring in Quiva first of all then, and to talk about the basics of Ireland's relationship with England, something that really isn't, I don't think, taught in schools, or at least it certainly wasn't when I was at school. So some people might be thinking, why are we doing an episode about Ireland on a podcast about English history? But uh, wouldn't it be fair to say that you can't really understand English history without understanding its relationship with Ireland? Well, yeah, as an Irish historian, I'm bound to think that. And I do think the Irish question is the most significant constitutional question in Britain in the 19th and into the 20th century. It has profound implications for how we understand how suffrage developed, the extension of the franchise, the extension of the empire, the development of the empire in the 16th century, and those processes of decolonization that begin actually with the foundation of the Irish Free State in 1922. But Ireland, that's looking a little bit ahead. The connections between Ireland and England go way back to the 12th century. That was when a Gaelic chieftain, Dermot McMurrow, invited a Norman lord, Richard de Clare, the Earl of Pembroke, to help him regain his throne. So he, there was political power struggles in the kingships in Ireland, and McMurrow invites de Clare in to help him regain his throne. And this is the beginning of the Norman presence in Ireland. And of course, the Norman presence leads on to the English presence Richard de Clare is quite an interesting figure. He's known as, as Strongbow. He's a very powerful Norman magnate. And in the decades that follow Strongbow's invasion of Ireland, Henry II becomes quite worried that Strongbow might, in fact, pose a threat to the stability of his own throne. And so it is for that reason, in order to neutralise that threat, that Henry II moves to assert his control and his jurisdiction over Ireland. And so he is declared Lord of Ireland. This is accompanied by a papal bull from Pope Adrian II, I think it is. But I think I, what I want to emphasise are the limits of English Norman and English rule in and control over Ireland for much of this period. I mean, going right up to the Tudor conquest of Ireland. So for the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, there are quite significant boundaries 
to what is English control or Norman control over Ireland. And this is where one of the origins of the phrase the pale comes from and beyond the pale. So the pale region was a territory extending outwards from Dublin within which English or Norman control, customs, law was more firmly grounded beyond the pale, which was physically demarcated by a cursory fence, a set of paling posts. Beyond the pale was considered That was where the Gaelic order lasted for much longer. But I think increasingly historians have moved away from this idea of a clean dividing line between Gaelic Ireland and Norman Ireland. And instead, there is an emphasis on the hybridity of much of Irish culture as the Norman aristocracy assimilated into the Gaelic way of life. Looking ahead then, in 1542, Henry VIII is granted the title of the King of Ireland. So The title moves from being the Lord of Ireland to being the King of Ireland. And this is also in the context of the Reformation of Henry VIII moving to shore up the certainty with which he can maintain his possessions. And from the 1550s and the 1560s, there is a more extensive Tudor conquest of Ireland. On the one hand, Ireland is part of the borderlands of the English crown in common with Wales, perhaps thinking about parts of northern France and Calais. But the Reformation and the failure of the Reformation in Ireland means that Ireland in the 16th century begins to assume a much larger geopolitical significance. And there is a perceived greater need to assert and extend the reach of the crown's control in Ireland. So there Mm. are plantations of English settlers which begin in the 1560s in two counties in Ireland, Leash and Offaly. And this is followed by much more extensive plantations in the southern part of Ireland, in Munster, in the 1580s, and famously in Ulster after 1609. So plantations are a way of breaking what was known as old English power in Ireland. So these old, assimilated, semi-Gaelicized Norman aristocracy are not always considered politically reliable in the context of the Reformation. And so there's a perceived need to plant in new English settlers to extend and secure the connection between England and Ireland. Basically, the roots of the connections between the two islands of Great Britain and Ireland, or singularly England and Ireland, go back way back into Norman times, effectively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in English history, you talk about 1066 and all that. In Irish history, we talk about 1169 and all that. So yeah, it's the Norman invasion that begins that connection. Obviously, prior to that, these are neighbouring islands, neighbouring political entities, even though they looked quite different. There was always population movement between the two countries. Famously, St. Patrick, who Christianized Ireland, was, we think he was Welsh, I think, most is, is the general consensus. So there always is a movement of people between the two countries, lots of connections between Ireland and Scotland as well in the medieval period. So how was Ireland run in those early medieval times? Well, there was an Irish parliament, which, you know, parliaments are a feature, I suppose, of the Norman political system. And this Irish parliament basically mirrors the English one. There was a two chambers, there was a commons and a lord, uh, lords. But there are some quite important developments between the 15th and the 18th century that help us to understand how we get to the point where Ireland is formally incorporated into the United Kingdom after 1800 with the Act of Union. So to go back a little bit, 
I talked about the Gaelicization of these Norman lords and the hybridity of the cultural system as well as the political system. And although Henry II and his successors were indeed lords of Ireland, the extent of their real control over what was happening in Ireland was quite limited, hence the Tudor invasion that comes in the 16th century. And in that, in the absence of one powerful crown, there are large feudal lords who are very powerful and very influential. And it is in an attempt to curb the power and the influence of those large feudal lords that a law is passed in 1494, Poyning's Law, which makes the Irish Parliament subordinate to the English one. So that's an important step along this road towards political union. The political implications of the Reformation, the crisis of the 1640s, the Glorious Revolution, as it's known in England, exclusionary penal laws, anti-Catholic sentiment in Georgian Britain, all of these have significant consequences for the structure and the organisation of the Irish Parliament, which does continue to exist with varying degrees of significance and influence over that whole period. And broadly what happens over that long period is that representation in the Irish Parliament changes to being predominantly loyalist and Protestant. And it is accompanied by a period of political stagnation and decline. And power is much more definitively located in England over that period. Now, that's reversed for a short time in the 1780s under the leadership of a man known as Henry Grattan, when the authority and the powers of the Irish Parliament are increased This is in the context of the American War of Independence. Britain is fearing revolutionary contagion, the loss of another portion of territory. And there are some strong connections between the demands of the American colonists and the Irish patriots, as the Grattanites are called in Parliament. And Grattan's Parliament is a predominantly Protestant and loyalist parliament, but Grattan is open to the idea of Catholic representation. But Grattan's Parliament this brief period where the Irish Parliament does seem to be enjoying an increase in authority comes to an end when the Act of Union is passed in the wake of the 1798 rebellion. And the Act of Union dissolves the Irish Parliament and henceforth Irish MPs go to sit in Westminster. And interestingly, the Irish Parliament votes to abolish itself, which I think doesn't usually happen. Um, And there are charges of corruption and bribery that accompanied that vote. But yeah, a parliament committing political suicide is is perhaps uh, an unusual occurrence. I'll say. So really what you're describing there, I suppose, is how important the role of religion is to the Irish identity uh, versus the English Protestant identity, uh, which came through as a result of Henry VIII's decision to split from the Pope in Rome. Mm. So hopefully for people following this, you know, we can really see that there are two distinct kind of magnets. They're kind of polar opposite magnets in a way, aren't they? Yeah, I I think... Conflict in Ireland, as it as we'll go on to talk about emerging in the 19th and the 20th century and, you know, lingering on into the late 20th century with the Northern Irish Troubles. It's a mistake, I think, to think of it as a religious conflict. But what happens over the course of the period that I've just been talking about is that religious identity becomes fused with political identity. And Mm -hmm. it is sort of the motor that is driving political identity. And that, let me say, is partly as a result of choices made by successive British governments. You know, the Act of Union passed in in 1800 is supposed to be accompanied by Catholic emancipation, by Catholics under the penal laws, Catholics were excluded from political representation. And the Prime Minister and his kind of chief 
political allies in drafting the Act of Union intended that that would be the kind of the compensation for the loss of the Irish Parliament would be that you would have better, more meaningful representation for the Irish people in that Catholics would be able to sit in Westminster. But that is blocked by the king himself. And so what happens is that in the first decades of the 19th century, there's a big campaign for Catholic emancipation, which then moves, develops into a broader campaign for the repeal of the Act of Union. And that's then where the campaigns for Irish self-government really develop out of in the in the 1830s, the 1840s. And those campaigns are led by a man called Daniel O'Connell. Yes. And we'll talk to Howard about him in a sec. But um, I've just been writing down a few keywords there in during your answer and it strikes me that identity representation ownership are all key ideas that um, really slip through the hands of the Irish as a result of English dominance in Ireland over this long period of several hundred years would you agree with that 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 sort of the Irish it's never been their home in a way even though it is their home someone else has moved in Well, yeah, I mean, those plantations that I talked about in the 16th and 17th centuries, that is, let's be clear about what we're talking about, mass dispossession of land, uh, the taking Mm. of land from Irish people and, and the granting of that land to settlers from Scotland and from England. And, you know, the Irish make the decision to back the Jacobites during the 17th century, the late 17th century, during the, the and the Williamite Wars are actually really significant, really bloody in Ireland. You know, that's during the period where we have the Battle of the Boyne. So, you, you know, Irish people don't necessarily think of the Glorious Revolution as a peaceful revolution. It is, that was a bloody set of battles that played out in Ireland as across the rest of Britain. So, so I think... I don't want to say that Irish people don't have any identity because, of course, they do. It's just that they're locked out of the structures of power systematically and deliberately locked out for long periods. And that's before we even talk about class aspects, which play out slightly differently in in Ireland than they do in Britain, because Ireland doesn't have an industrial revolution in the same way that the rest that England does. So there's increasing ways in which Ireland is on a different path, actually, than Britain. And after the Act of Union, Ireland begins to pose these questions, these problems. The Irish question is the biggest question in 19th century Britain, precisely because it doesn't neatly fit within the structures because of these differential experiences from the 16th century onwards. I'm going to ask you a really difficult off-piste question now. Maybe it is easy to answer, I don't know. But um, if you had a time machine and you could go back and pinpoint the time, which was the sort of temporal junction point in the story of Ireland and its Mm -hmm. people. Where would be the point in history where you say this is the thing that started the ball rolling to the English having control over the Irish? um, Where does it begin? It's an interesting question because as I've talked about, you know, that story is a story of incremental steps towards Mm. the Act of Union. And sometimes those steps are quite large. Sometimes they're very small. I think the one that stands out as most significant to me is the policy of plantation in the 16th century and the early 17th century, because that, particularly the Ulster plantation, decisively changed the demographic, the religious and the political identity of people in a part of Ireland. And that had and has profound consequences that we are still living with today. Now, that doesn't mean that 
I'm not questioning the Irishness of those people in any way if they want to identify as Irish. I don't view people in the northeast of Ireland today as settlers. I think those are kind of redundant and unhelpful political categories that don't actually advance our historical understanding all that well and definitely don't advance our prospects for reconciliation and effective political structures. But I do think that that moment was a really decisive turning point. Do you think also that, and I hope I've got this right, the strength of the crown in England seems to be very, very dominant, even since Norman times. So was the strength of leadership good enough to sort of resist the English crown on the Irish side? Do you mean in the 16th, 17th century, that in that period? Probably more just going back to the early medieval period in the 12th century. Well, I suppose I think maybe I would quibble a bit with your presentation of the English crown as sort of omnipotent in England in that period. You know, there are regional rebellions in England. There are powerful aristocrats, powerful feudal lords. I think, you know, you have a whole series of, you know, wars of succession, right, in that period in England as well. So I don't think Ireland is very different in that way. Of course, it's more um, physically remote from England. So I think Ireland, there are regional magnates with strong regional powers, perhaps finding it difficult to assert national control over the entirety of the territory. There are some, you know, there's a famous episode in 1607 known as the Flight of the Earls when after the defeat of the last kind of Gaelic chieftains in 1603, those earls, Hugh O'Neill and Hugh O'Donnell, flee Ireland, leave for the continent. And that is viewed as kind of signaling the collapse of of the Gaelic order. And they're quite, you know, they're interesting figures. They have a, a number of near misses. They're quite, they're very militarily successful, actually, despite, you know, not having all of the support from the continent that they would have hoped for and from the Spanish in particular. So, you know, Spanish Armada fails in, in the 1590s. I don't think I agree that it's about a failure of leadership. I think the structures are just quite different. It's still quite a large territory. You yeah. Know. Well, how did the desire for the Irish to rule themselves develop over these hundreds of years that you've been describing? Well, I've talked about how the structures of the English and the British political system are increasingly exclusionary to Catholics, Catholics in in Britain and England, as well as in Ireland. And of course, in Ireland, because the Reformation fails to take hold in a meaningful way, the majority of the population are Catholic. So you have this situation developing where the religion of the people is not the religion of the rulers. That's not unusual, I suppose, in, in 17th century Europe, but it is quite pronounced in Ireland. And the failure of the crown, I suppose, to or of the crown and the government to hold up its end of the bargain, to bring in Catholic emancipation along with the Act of Union, means that Ireland is in a period of quite substantial decline, I would say, in the first decades of the 19th century. A big turning point in the growth and the development of Irish nationalism is the Great Famine of the 1840s. And this episode, which, as your listeners may know, was the cause of the death of one million people and the emigration of another million people, began a process of you know huge decline in the Irish population, which has it has still not recovered. And Ireland is very unusual, perhaps unique in the kind of modern Western world to have population decline over this period as opposed to population growth. And this famine is not accompanied by 
significant relief efforts by the British government. And therefore, the charge is that the Act of Union has been betrayed, has failed. What is the point of an Act of Union? What is the point of political union between England, between Britain and Ireland, if when you have this humanitarian crisis, there isn't a, a political will to establish effective relief efforts and save the lives of starving and destitute people? And it is out of the failure of relief efforts for the famine that Irish nationalism develops in a quite important way. Now, in the years prior to the famine, you do have the beginnings of modern political parties, I suppose, with O'Connell's party. Howard will probably talk about O'Connell a little bit more. O'Connell dies brokenhearted during the famine, having seen, you know, what that disaster is doing to Irish society and Irish people. But out of the famine comes an opposition to the Act of Union from an unexpected source, which is from some Protestant landlords, gentry figures, coming often from a Tory background, coming often sometimes from an orange background, and they begin to develop a quite a searing critique of what they see as the failure of the political structures in Ireland out of the Act of Union. And this, the person I'm thinking of particularly is a man called Isaac Butt, who's a barrister and a journalist, and he starts to write some really important political pamphlets during the famine that start to advance this critique. Butt goes on to found the Home Government Association in the 1870s, and that is the beginnings of a mass movement for home rule for the Irish people, for self-government for Ireland, for the repeal of the Act of Union, for the return of an Irish parliament, still within the framework of the empire, but devolution as we would understand it today. And actually, Butt is quite an interesting person. He he advocates what he calls home rule all around, you know, kind of federal United Kingdom, very close to what we have 100 and hmm. 150 years later. He's quite ahead of his time in that regard. So Very the, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And so the other thing that I just want to say is that, so you have this criticism around religion, around the fusing of religious and political identity, the humanitarian failure of the Great Famine, And this all then becomes bound up with the land question. And the campaign for land reform is another one of these motors that drives the campaign for self-government and for political representation. You know, the kind of spectacle during the famine of landlords evicting starving peasants, assisted emigration schemes to the United States, the kind of quite radical restructuring of the Irish land system that occurs as a result of the famine that is kind of designed into the British government's approach to the famine. That is another driver of the campaign for Irish for Irish self-government. So so when Gladstone, the prime minister, the liberal prime minister of Britain, sort of starts to turn his attention to the Irish question in the 1860s and the 1870s, part of that question is how do you solve the land question in Ireland? And there's a, an approach taken that you you kind of try and take the heat out of the land question initially by enacting moderate measures of land reform, increased tenant rights. It becomes quite a radical legislative journey, but it, it begins in quite moderate, quite a moderate way. So you solve the land question first, and then you can turn your attention to the political question. And if you settle the land question, that is a way of taking the radical edge off Irish politics, because there are moments in the 1860s and the 1870s where it looks like things might tip over into rebellion. I do want to say one more thing, though, which is that when we talk about Irish nationalism, it's important to recognise that this is a broad spectrum of attitudes, of beliefs, of organisations. There are two, I suppose, main strands that are constitutional nationalism, 
which operates within the parliamentary sphere, which is advocating for reform via Westminster for Irish self-government within the empire. And then there's the advanced nationalist strand, the more radical Republican strand that emerges from the 1850s onwards with the foundation of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Fenian Brotherhood and rebellion in the 1860s and a quite significant bombing campaign in Britain, in, in England in the 1880s. And these two poles of Irish nationalism, the constitutional movement and the advanced movement, coexist on a spectrum. They're not always in opposition to each other. And sometimes there's movement between those two positions. Quite a few MPs in the Irish Parliamentary Party in the 1880s and the 1890s have a Fenian background, you know, were members of this revolutionary secret society in the 1850s and the 1860s. So there is a lot of commonality, a lot of overlap. And so I think we need to be careful not to think of Irish nationalism as a monolith. There are shades of opinion that, that are within it. Yes, it's a highly nuanced picture, isn't it? And um, I suppose just listening to what you've been describing, we're, we're trying to describe a period in history which is, as a chunk, hundreds of years. That's really difficult to do yeah. in a podcast. <laughs> Apologies for people looking for more detail. It's quite hard to flesh out any more points. But um, I think broadly speaking, we're looking at the English stamp on Ireland. The ink has been wet for a very long time, if you know what I mean. And it's taken a while for that ink to dry and for the Irish to sort of try and rub out that ink and influence and reclaim their land, their identity, their representation, their ownership of things for a long time as well. So it's a very sort of, it's almost like a slow motion battle, isn't it, between two distinct uh, national identities, national powers. Yes, although... Drawn out over hundreds of years and with lots of little nuances in, in between. And Yeah, yeah. And for much of the 19th century, what we think the mainstream of, of Irish nationalism is constitutional. And, you know, that envisages devolution for Ireland within the empire, continuing to send some MPs to Westminster, not all. You know, there would be an Irish parliament as well, would have some limited powers very limited powers in the areas of kind of foreign policy and defence, some limited financial powers in terms of raising taxation. But the idea that Britishness and Irishness were incompatible was not necessarily part of the story for everybody. Certainly some people viewed that on the more advanced end of things, but at least some prominent leaders of Irish nationalism don't view those things as as incompatible. And the last leader of constitutional nationalism in Ireland, John Redmond, most certainly is very comfortable within that imperial framework. And he views Ireland's, for example, the service of Irish men during the Great War as kind of proving Ireland's loyalty to the empire, um, Mm. even though he is still campaigning for for Irish self-government. So so there, it's not a zero-sum identity. It maybe became that a little bit later, but I don't think that was always the case. Could we agree then perhaps that the Irish potato famine, where was it more than one million people died, was the catalyst that um, sped up the will to have this better representation? Yeah, I think so. I think, as I've, I've talked about with Isaac Bosch and this quite unexpected turn of events whereby Irish Tories are criticizing the Irish political system, you know, the political system of the Act of Union, that definitely is rooted in the Great Famine and the failures of 
relief efforts and, and a kind of humanitarian approach. The other really important thing then is that one million died, but one million emigrated as well. And, and you have from the 1840s, but also again in the 1880s, huge waves of emigration from Ireland to America. Those emigrants take their time to settle, but they do settle and they do do quite well and they are quite prosperous. And they become a really important source of financial donations to Irish nationalism in the 1870s and the 1880s because they have this memory of the failures of of British policy in Ireland from the famine that drove them or their fathers or mothers out. And the American dollar shouldn't be discounted as an important element in this. And that's we know that even to this day, you know, President Biden takes a strong interest in Irish affairs. And I think that can be traced back to those waves of emigration and the significance of the American factor in the development of Irish nationalism also. Well, let's talk now to Howard Spencer, our English heritage blue plaques historian. Blue plaques, if you don't know, are these plaques that are erected in London by English heritage and previous organisations that existed before English heritage to commemorate notable figures who lived and worked in the capital. One of these political figures in the story of the growth of Irish nationalism, and the man who probably helped influence some of these people to become presidents, is um, a man named Daniel O'Connell, who you, Quiver, have already mentioned. So, Howard, what can you tell us about Daniel O'Connell? Well, he was known as the Liberator. In fact, that phrase uh, appears on his blue plaque, chiefly known for the big role he played in bringing about Catholic emancipation which was enacted in 1829 and meant that he and other Roman Catholics could sit in the House of Commons. Um, as Quiva said, Ireland was majority Catholic, like nine-tenths, but no Catholic could sit in Parliament owing to the nature of the oaths of allegiance that members of Parliament were expected to take. So there was no actual law saying, you know, black and white, no Catholic may sit, but basically the oaths were phrased in such a way that they were so offensive that no Catholic could in good conscience take them. Basically, you had to deny the authority of the Pope. And it's worth saying, too, in a bit of context here, that there were also some similar restrictions that, that restricted Catholic access to things like higher education and the professions. I mean, the universities such as Trinity College Dublin were preserves of the um, established church, as in the, the Anglican established church, and also in the professions where O'Connell himself was trained as a lawyer, but he could get no higher than junior counsel owing to his religion. So I think this gives you some Mm. idea of the kind of penalties and and, and restrictions that Roman Catholic Irish, as in the vast majority of the population, lived under. And this this here, we're talking about the sort of middle classes. We're not not even talking about the people that were just scratching a living owing to having been turfed off the decent land and being forced to sort of grow potatoes where they could, effectively. So getting back to O'Connell, he was a very powerful orator. Uh, He organised something called the Catholic Association, formed in 1823, which was a subscription-based political mass movement. Now, this is very important because this was very much a new thing. And his successful organisation of this mass movement gives him a significance that really goes way beyond Irish politics and makes him a kind of a global figure, really. So what he did was, aided by this Catholic Association, he got himself elected for County Clare, at a by-election in July 1828, even though he could not take his seat at that point. Now, of course, there's, there's an interesting contrast here because he's getting himself elected and trying to arrive at a situation where he can take his seat. There's a later generation of nationalists who, of course, all get themselves elected and then choose not to take their seats. And we'll come on to that a bit later. 
Now, the government, which is at that point uh, run by the Duke of Wellington, he's the prime minister, they kind of realise that the game is up here because they are in danger of losing the Irish seats that they control. And there was, there's also a danger that if, if they deny O'Connell his right to take his seat in the House of Commons, there will be unrest. So there's, there's a sort of an implicit, it's a, it's a non-violent tactic, but there is an implicit threat, I suppose, of popular violence. And so eventually they concede Catholic emancipation in 1829, which has all sorts of other consequences. I mean, basically it splits the Tory party. You get a kind of a, a group known as the Ultras, who are the sort of last ditch people who will, who absolutely oppose it, who end up then bizarrely allying themselves for a while with the Whigs, who are the kind of the more, well, in, in, as we would consider it, the more left-wing party. So the, it, it creates some odd alliances. And I think odd alliances is something we're going to see a bit later as as well. So O'Connell finally takes his seat in 1830, and as an MP, he plays a major role in securing the abolition of slavery in British dominions in 1833. So in this way, he does work with, on that occasion, the Whig government of Lord Melbourne. And his nonviolent methods inspired later figures such as Gandhi, Martin Luther King, even Mandela. By contemporaries, he was seen as a, as a sort of pathfinder in this sort of new era of, of mass politics. Gladstone called him quote, the greatest popular leader whom the world has ever seen. So, you know, not much doubt there. Physically, he was very impressive, tall, broad man. There's a, there's a description by a poet, Aubrey de Vere, who wrote that his strong forehead seemed, quote, well designed for thinking purposes, but better still for butting against opponents or pushing his way through them. So this, this gives you a sort of an idea of his, his sort of very big personality. The description by Gladstone, that's one of the prime ministers, isn't it? Is that right? That's right. Yes, I mean, he's, he's, he's a later figure and, he's, and he is the prime minister who takes up the issue of, of home rule. He's an interesting figure, Gladstone. He starts his political career as a Tory and sort of moves leftwards as he, as he goes on, as it, as it were, and ends up as a, as a liberal prime minister proposing home rule, but not able to enact it. What about Daniel O'Connell's Irish contemporaries? Were there, he must have had other colleagues in Parliament who sat alongside him? Well, he, he, he did. His big personality rather obscured them. In fact, his parliamentary squad were sometimes referred to rather contemptuously as his tail because <laughs> he, he sort of was deemed to be such a, a large figure that he kind of eclipsed them. I mean, and he certainly had no doubts about his own significance uh, himself. I mean, he was, he was asked once um, who was um, Ireland's most significant figure. And he said, well, I suppose that would be uh, Henry Grattan next to myself. So he didn't have any issues with um, false modesty or anything like that. <laughs> okay. um, I should say also that it's, um, probably because of his, his big personality and his success in forcing the concession of Catholic emancipation, which had been so long talked about but had, had never happened, he was the object of fear and loathing from a lot of the uh, British political establishment. And I, I found when I did the research for the plaque a terrible uh, couple of lines of doggerel which were published in the in the times in, in 1835 about him which just went scum condensed of irish bog ruffian coward demagogue so that gives the idea of the kind of well you know i suppose we might call it hate speech today really that was that was directed against o'connell because he was a you know a successful mass movement activist i think it, it scared a lot, a lot of people really now, in terms of his commemoration of course the main drag in in dublin is o'connell street so that's um, that's named after him and there's a plaque in Merrion Square, which is one of the magnificent um, Georgian squares in, in Dublin, on, on his house there. Um, and a big a statue. Indeed, of course. And, and there's a plaque too in, in Genoa, in Italy, which is where he died en route to Rome on a, on a pilgrimage in, in mm. 1847. And as Cueva's already said, that was in a mood of some despair because he'd been unable to 
really do anything about to push uh, Lord John Russell's government into doing very much about the Irish famine. It was all a bit too little too late. Now, O'Connell spent a fair amount of time in London, both before and after becoming an MP. He was there in the uh, 1790s, and there's actually a surviving address in, in Chiswick on the riverfront where he lived and in fact left because he was disgusted at the landlady's um, drinking habits. But his plaque, which went up in 2017, so pretty recently, is at 14 Albemarle Street in, in Mayfair, which then and now is a very fashionable address and was deliberately chosen by O'Connell um, for that reason, partly because, as he told his wife, he, he wanted to sort of please his daughters. And I think partly to sort of, it kind of reflects the sort of profile and standing that he managed to achieve by that, si- uh, that time. So he's, he's, he's a very considerable figure, and it was, it was a real pleasure to be able to um, uh, research and put up the plaque to him, which was originally suggested by one of his descendants. And his key achievement is this Catholic emancipation in 1829. What, what does that mean in real terms? Well, it, it, it simply means that he was able to take his seat in, in, in the House of Commons, along with other Roman Catholics. I mean, it's worth saying, too, that there were similar restrictions that went at about the same time on dissenters. There was something called the Test Acts, which basically meant that no Protestant dissenter could, in good conscience, take their seat in, in the House of, of Commons. And, and later on, you have Jewish emancipation in 1858, which allows Jewish people to sit in the House of Commons. Now, if we bring back Quiva into the conversation, we need to talk about Ulster unionism and this other side of the argument against self-government for Ireland. Can you explain what Ulster unionism is from a religious, geographical and political perspective? Yeah, another big, big question. To begin geographically, because that's probably the most straightforward, Ulster is one of the four ancient provinces of Ireland, and that is the northern province of Ireland. The province of Ulster comprises nine counties, six of which made it into Northern Ireland in 1921 when that was formally established. The other provinces are Leinster, Munster and Connacht. And your listeners might remember we talked about plantations of Ireland in Munster and Ulster in the the 16th and 17th centuries. The plantation in Ulster after 1609 was by far the most extensive Uh, There were a number of counties that were substantially planted by settlers from Scotland, especially, but also some from England. And there were, in some cases, there was sort of sponsorship, I suppose, by key business interests. That's why Derry is called Londonderry, the county of Londonderry, because there was a strong connection between the borough of London and that set, that act of settlement. So it is as a result of that Ulster plantation that we see the development of Ulster unionism in the centuries that follow. The plantation of Ulster means that the settlers that come in are Protestants. Many of them are Presbyterians, are dissenters, as Howard has mentioned, and they are concentrated. So that means that the nonconformist tradition in Ireland is concentrated in Ulster and primarily in the northeast of Ireland. So in the counties around of Antrim, of Down, of Derry, of Tyrone and of Fermanagh, to lesser extents with Tyrone, Fermanagh and Armagh. So you have the concentration of the nonconformist tradition in the northeast of Ireland. And those people, those communities have quite distinctive historical experiences, especially in the 1640s. So in this in 1641, there is a rebellion in Ulster 
where some of the dispossessed Catholic peasants, I suppose, rise up and rebel against the new Protestant settlers. And that's a very bloody rebellion. And that rebellion looms very large in the creation of an Ulster Unionist or a Loyalist or a Protestant mentality and set of kind of core historical experiences. And there was a great project at Trinity College Dublin a few years back to gather some of the testimonies and the witness statements around that that act of rebellion. And it is that rebellion in 1641, which ultimately preempts the Cromwellian invasion of Ireland in 1649, which is really significant as well. The Protestants, the settlers in Ulster, generally take the side of William of Orange in the 1680s and the 1690s, where, as I've mentioned, Catholics tend to align behind James II. And so you have the Williamite Wars are really significant. There is a siege of Derry in the 1680s. And then, of course, you have the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, which continues to be commemorated actively in Northern Ireland. So I talked about the the fusion of religious and political identities. We can see the beginnings of that. Ulster Unionist ideology, I suppose, begins to emerge quite definitively in the probably the second in the 19th century. And it really starts to motor in parallel to the emergence of home rule in the second half of the 19th century. But there's a few things that I just want to talk about that feed into that ideology. The first is this sense of loyalty to the crown above all else. And there is a bit of suspicion, I suppose, a thread of suspicion that you see running throughout Ulster Unionism towards the parliament. Parliament is dangerous. Parliament cannot be trusted. Parliament may betray the loyal sons of Ulster for their own purposes. And so there's a conditional sense of loyalty to the crown but a, or to the parliament, but an ultimate sense of loyalty to the crown. And that's how Ulster Unionism accommodates what might seem to be a, quite a contradictory stance in that it is in opposition to Parliament, to Westminster. And people might ask, why are Ulster Unionists opposed to Westminster? They're supposed to be you know, loyal British citizens, but it's because the ultimate source of Ulster Unionist allegiance is to the Crown and not necessarily to Parliament. So that's one point that is important to bear in mind. And secondly is what I would say is a covenanting strand within Ulster Unionist ideology. And this comes from this experience of having been settlers on a frontier in a hostile land, believing that you were sent by God as the non-conformist tradition develops, as, as it really extends in the 17th century in Britain as well as in Ireland. You know, these are people living on the margins of civilization or extending civilization. So that's an important strand as well. The third thing I will say, though, is an industrial element. So we mentioned earlier that Ireland doesn't undergo an industrial revolution like like England does. But where there is industrial development in Ireland is concentrated in the northeast, in those parts of Ireland that were settled during the Ulster plantation. And this is where you see the growth of Belfast as a significant industrial centre in the 19th century. This is partly to do, you know, there's traditions around the linen industry, around the shipbuilding industry. For those reasons, being well connected into imperial markets is really important for both of those industries. And so the rise of Irish nationalism presents a number of challenges then to Irish or to Ulster Unionist, well, Irish Unionist, but also Ulster Unionist outlook, their beliefs. 
they fear being swamped in an overwhelmingly Catholic political system. They fear that the civil and religious liberties of Protestantism will be undermined, will be removed, will be stripped back. They fear that home rule will be Rome rule, that it will create a priest-ridden society that is subservient to Rome and will betray the liberties of that, that have been won during the Reformation. And they also fear that it will set back or collapse the industry in Ulster. And then on top of that, you have the crown and, and the sense of identity. People in Ulster coming from a Protestant background during the 19th and the early 20th centuries, they do describe themselves as British. It's only really in the last 30 or 40 years that we see the growth of a Northern Irish identity. But there's a sense of Belfast in particular as a great British city, as an Athens of the North, just as Edinburgh is an Athens of the North. There's, you know, there's quite interesting liberal, unionist, you know, political cultures, intellectual cultures, lots of political and literary salons, you know, that sort of enlightenment space that we think of as being primarily a Scottish story also happens in Belfast in particular and to a lesser extent in Dublin. So there's multiple strands to Ulster unionism. Initially, unionism in Ireland is an all-island movement covering, you know, there are unionists right across Ireland. But one of the developments in this story that we are telling is the concentration of unionism primarily into the northeast corner of Ireland. And it's a where unionists in the rest of Ireland tend to be predominantly upper class, upper middle class or upper class. You know, they have a strong connection with landlordism, with the ascendancy. Unionism in Ulster is much more of a cross-class alliance and there is working class, lower middle class Ulster unionists because it's, you know, it's an industry, it's industrially rooted. And that's quite important as well in this story we're telling. Well, I think you should take a bow for that one, um, <laughs> Quiva, because that's um, a very long and detailed um, answer on the question of Ulster unionism, but uh, mm. a really important multi-layered aspect to that answer as well. So... Let's try and move on to um, some other key dates in the story. The Easter Rising of 1916 and those events afterwards, that's probably a, a key point as well. It took place in Dublin in, in 1916, which of course is, you know, around the time that um, Europe is at war. So what was the Easter Rising exactly? So the Easter Rising uh, was a rebellion staged in Dublin by a small group of Irish advanced nationalists, so that more extreme end of Irish nationalism. The Rising itself was a failure in military terms. The rebels occupied buildings in central Dublin, held out for about a week. The British brought in heavy artillery, brought gunboats up the Liffey and, and blasted them out of it, basically. And it was in the aftermath of that Easter Rising that the leaders were executed, 16 of them in total, and most of them in the space of a couple of weeks in May 1916. And one Sir Roger Casement was hanged in London in August 1916. The Easter Rising was certainly the leaders of the Easter Rising were in negotiations, in dialogue with the Germans. They had hoped that Germans would supply arms. In the end, that mission failed. It was when he was coming back from that mission that Roger Casement was arrested on Good Friday, 1916. But they're certainly kind of dialoguing or attempting to dialogue with the enemies of the crown. And, and Casement is hanged for treason. It's for that particular aspect that he's hanged. He's not caught in open rebellion, but he's hanged for treason. I should say that the Easter Rising is also understood as a rebellion against 
mainstream Irish nationalism as well as against the British government. So there's been a series of attempts to introduce home rule in the late 19th and early 20th century. Two previous home rule bills are vetoed by the House of Lords. In the first, after 1909, where you have the people's budget and the constitutional crisis, the veto of the House of Lords is removed. The Irish Parliamentary Party, after the election of 1910, hold the balance of power in Westminster. So they are able to extract a promise from Asquith, who is the Prime Minister, that he will introduce Home Rule. I mean, the Liberals are already committed to Home Rule. Asquith, I think it's fair to say, is not as enthusiastic about it as Gladstone was, who Gladstone had a personal commitment to it. Asquith doesn't have that level of personal commitment, but it's a political transaction, I suppose, for want of a better word. But when the home, the third Home Rule Bill is introduced in 1912, this provokes vociferous opposition from Ulster Unionists who are aided in that opposition by senior members of the Conservative Party. And it looks for some time between 1912, 13, 1914, as though Ireland may descend into civil war. Both the Ulster Unionists and Irish Nationalists set up volunteer forces, sort of paramilitary forces, to either oppose home rule in arms or defend it in arms. And so when the war comes in August 1914, it offers a bit of breathing space for everybody, actually. It leaves a lot of questions to be resolved, but it kind of takes away that immediate threat of civil war. I mentioned earlier that John Redmond, the last leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, was somebody who was who supported the British war effort. But some Irish nationalists are very opposed to this. And they kind of split decisively away from him. And it's that minority of Irish nationalists who staged the rising in Dublin in 1916. So the kind of the political circumstances leading up to it, the rebellion doesn't come out of nowhere. The rebels themselves talk about the long tradition of Irish rebels, I suppose, looking back to 1798 and in the generations since then. But there's also an immediate political context, which is to do with the perceived failure of the British government to stand up to the threat to home rule. So in a nutshell, how would you describe what the Easter Rising was trying to achieve? And was it always doomed to failure? So it, it happened on Easter Monday, but it should have happened on Easter Sunday. And it should have been a much more extensive rising in terms of across the country than actually happened. As we know, it was largely confined to Dublin. There was a little bit of activity in Galway and Wexford, a little bit in County Meath as well, but primarily in Dublin. But the original plans were for a, a national rising, in particular, including volunteers in the north in Belfast. But there was a countermanding order issued on the Sunday. Things hastily kind of reconvened for the Monday. And it, what it meant was that it was really only a Dublin affair. So the chances of success then were were much diminished. They were never going to be able to hold out forever in Dublin. They probably hoped for more significant German assistance than was the case. At some point, they hoped for a German expeditionary force, perhaps. So they're kind of making the best of a bad situation as it all collapses over that Easter weekend and it collapses in, in multiple ways. But there is a, a strand within the leadership of the Easter Rising who are determined to go away anyway to make a kind of a, a symbolic sacrificial stand so that their generation won't be the ones who don't rise up. And they are the leaders, at least some of them, are prepared to make that stand with their death. And that is what happened. But um, more specifically, they're rising up against to change what exactly? They declare an Irish Republic. They form a provisional government and declare an Irish Republic. So they are, they're not interested in home rule. 
They're not interested in waiting for home rule, but they're also not interested in home rule. So they are they establish an Irish Republic. They proclaim it outside the GPO in 1916 on that on that Easter Monday. And the GPO it is, is the General Post Office. Yeah, it? outside outside the General Post Office. That was their sort of oddly chosen. I mean, it's on O'Connell, on O'Connell Street, on Sackville Street, as it was there. It's right beside the site of what was Nelson's pillar. But one of the things that they don't do is they don't cut the cables. So the British are able to communicate, you know, send telegrams to various army garrisons across Ireland, send telegrams back to London. So it's one of these curious things, you know, was the rising intended to succeed? If so, why do they choose these buildings and not those buildings? Why do they not do things to cut telecommunications? It's one of these curiosities in the story. After that, how did the Irish general election of 1918 generate further political change as a result of the Easter Rising? One of the other curiosities about the Easter Rising is that it gets called the Sinn Féin Rebellion very quickly. Sinn Féin were a political party that are part of the kind of radical political cultures of Ireland in the years prior to the Easter Rising, but they had nothing to do with the Rising itself. In fact, Sinn Féin before the Rising is best known for an attempt, an innovative attempt to, you know, settle the relationship between Britain and Ireland by proposing a dual monarchy along the Austro-Hungarian model that was put forward by Arthur Griffith, who was the first leader of Sinn Féin. So the rising gets called the Sinn Féin rising pretty quickly, although Sinn Féin had nothing to do with it. And Sinn Féin, Sinn Féiners becomes the catch-all term for those of a, of a radical disposition, those of a rebel mindset, I suppose. The execution of the 16 leaders is also accompanied by mass arrests, internment in England mostly, well, some in Wales, England and Wales. Up to a thousand people are arrested and deported and interned or imprisoned. And although by standards of, some listeners might think this was a, a treasonous rebellion in wartime attempting to bring in the assistance of the enemies of the crown in the Germans, executing 16 of the leaders, that's a probably a reasonable enough step to take, response from the British government. But it created mass disquiet in Ireland. And what you see in the summer of 1916, in through 1917, and leading up to 1918, is a process of radicalisation of Irish public opinion, driven by sympathy for the rebels, but also turbocharged by disillusion with the war effort, which is just dragging on and on and on, fears around conscription, Conscription is not introduced in Ireland in 1916, like it is in, in the rest of Britain. But there are fears, well-grounded fears, in the spring of 1918 that conscription will be introduced to Ireland. So the opposition to conscription then gets sort of all tied up with sympathy for the rebels. And this is capitalised on by Sinn Féin, who kind of emerge, who regroup as a political party you know, this is where all the ex-rebels, they all join, they all start to occupy positions of power. Eamon de Valera, who was probably the most senior surviving leader, he's elected president of Sinn Féin in 1917. And then, of course, the other big aspect of the 1918 election in Ireland, as it is in the rest of the UK, is the expansion of the franchise. So you have a massively expanded franchise. And what you see is a Sinn Féin landslide, where in almost every constituency in Ireland outside of Ulster, where unionists continue to remain strong, Sinn Féin is the dominant political party. And they then, the Irish Parliamentary Party, exit the political scene. And Sinn Féin now represent the great majority of Irish nationalists. Could I come in there, Quiver, and ask you something about the optics of 
the British reaction or overreaction to the Easter Rising. And, and in fact, one particular of the 16 executions that you, you mentioned, and that's the one of Connolly, who was yeah. injured in the Rising and was yeah. actually shot while he was tied to a chair. Do you think that that had a particular significance? The way the executions are reported are really interesting. Nobody knows how many are sentenced to death. What you get are cryptic, brief newspaper reports. Thomas Clark was shot this morning. Patrick Pierce was shot this morning. So rumours run wild. And it's a drip, drip, drip effect. The first ones happen on, I think it's the 3rd of May. And Connolly is executed on the 12th of May. So it's a it's a long, drawn-out process. Connolly is dying of gangrene when he's executed. He's semi-conscious when he's brought to Kilmainham Jail from Dublin Castle Hospital. He has to be propped up. The other man who's killed, who's shot alongside Connolly, or, or just before him on the same morning, is Sean McDiarmida, who was a much younger man, a Fenian, a stalwart of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, but he was actually quite significantly physically disabled. He had polio and was, you know, had, had a, a, seri- a serious physical disability. So the optics of those are pretty intense. And Connolly is a really well-known figure. He was a labour activist. He had lived in Belfast. He had lived in America. He had all sorts of connections in the international radical world. Somebody He he was born in Scotland of Irish parents, so he has Scottish connections as well. He lived there for the first period of his life. And, you know, he shouldn't have been spared if people are going to be shot because he was the leader of the Citizen Army, one of the rebel forces during the Rising. But certainly the kind of narratives that built up around having to tie Connolly to a chair in order to, for him to be shot, and he doesn't even know what's happening because he's, he's unconscious anyway because he is dying, those were difficult, I think, for the British government. From what you've been both describing there, it sounds as though it's actually quite hard to write an accurate history of exactly what happened in a really, really detailed way because some of the newspaper reporting at the time was so fleeting. Yeah, there are good records, though. The records of the court martials were released some years ago and they've been published. So you can see the quite cursory legal proceedings that preceded the executions. There are extensive British political papers that cast light on it. You know, Ireland is under martial law. It is a General Maxwell who is, you know, prosecuting the campaign against the rebels, who is who is leading the British reaction. And he's in correspondence with Asquith and senior figures in the British cabinet all the time. I mean, just to come back on Connolly for a second, Asquith and in particular, a man called John Dillon, who is a senior Irish parliamentary party figure, he begs Asquith to stop the executions before Connolly is executed. But there is a perception that the business class in Dublin are determined to enact their revenge against Connolly, who led a lot of strikes against particularly the Dublin 1913 strike and lockout. And the man who owned the Dublin Tramway Company was a man called William Martin Murphy. He also happened to own the Irish Independent newspaper, which published editorials calling for the surgeon's knife to be taken to the rebels in order to cut this infection out. So the Irish industrial class are also seeking revenge during the Rising itself. And Maxwell, I think, was not disposed to listen to Asquith. But even if he had, I think there was pressure from within Ireland to eliminate somebody like Connolly. Yeah, it's always more complicated than it sounds. And Asquith was the prime minister at the time in the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The War of Independence is what kind of happens following all this. How would you summarise, if you can, what that is? Yeah, so there are two strands to the War of Independence. There's a political strand and a military strand. The Sinn Féin MPs who were returned in the 
2018 election, you know, they stand on an abstentionist platform. They stand on the stated intention that they will not take their seats in Westminster. They will not take an oath to the British crown. They will not participate in a British political institution. And they set up their own parliament in Dublin, an underground parliament called Doyle Erin. And on the day that parliament meets, the first day that it meets, on the 21st of January 1919, there is a declaration of independence made. They plan to appeal to the Paris peace conferences, which is, you know, making all sorts of promising noises about the rights of small nations and this new kind of post-imperial or semi-post-imperial dispensation, global dispensation. So that's the political side. And then coincidentally on the same day, the Irish War of Independence begins. And this is when a local IRA unit in County Tipperary attack police who are accompanying some gelignite going to a local quarry and they kill two policemen, seize the Jelignite, and that is kind of held to begin the War of Independence. But it wasn't planned that the two would coincide. That is pure chance. And that tells us something about the relationship between the political and the military side of the struggle during the War of Independence. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, believed that the Republic was established in arms, in blood, in 1916. They believed that they are a revolutionary vanguard. They are taking the fight to the British. They are taking the fight to the British presence in Ireland. They are showing the people the way and the people will then fall in and and follow them. They are not always well disposed to civilian authority over military matters. Notionally, there's a minister of defence, but the Irish IRA volunteers don't take an oath of allegiance to the Doyle until... April 1921 and, and it's quite patchy it's it's not it's not well established across all units so on the political side at the same time they are attempting to set up some structures of government they work well in local government structures to get rates sent to them rather than over to Westminster they are very effective in the legal space they set up doyle courts that really supplant british justice the british legal system in ireland in 1920 and 1921 i mean british justice basically collapses in that period. And they have a very successful diplomatic or kind of global propaganda publicity campaign, which makes great use of some of the excesses of British military and policing policy in Ireland during the War of Independence. Some of your listeners may have heard of the Black and Tans, who are a kind of an auxiliary force who are intended to reinforce the police, the Royal Irish Constabulary. And they arrive in Ireland from March 1920 onwards, And it's fair to say, enact a campaign of terror on the Irish population. And there are, you know, there are decisions taken at the highest political level to allow collective punishment of Irish civilians, to allow for the burning of entire towns, to allow creameries to be burnt down, kind of destroying the economic potential of Irish Irish farmers and Irish communities. And unsurprisingly, the Republican movement makes great use of this. creates political sensations across America, across Europe. And although militarily the British could easily crush the Irish Republican movement if they wanted to, by flooding Ireland with the British army, with troops, by declaring martial law over the whole of the country, politically that was really difficult. And politically, the Lloyd George government, Lloyd George replaces Asquith in late 1916, Politically, the Lloyd George government doesn't have the political will to do that, not least because people in Britain are increasingly discomforted by by what they're seeing in Ireland. There's campaigns from the Labour Party, from backbench liberals, including former Prime Minister Asquith, who are really critical of the kind of collective punishment of the reprisals policy. 
And so it's partly because of that that you don't see the iron fist clamping down. And ultimately, on the 11th of July, 1921, a truce is declared. And that truce then holds out the prospect of negotiations for a political solution to the War of Independence. And this is where we get to these treaty negotiations and partition. So how difficult was it for the British government and fledgling Irish governments to agree to a treaty? So the negotiations take place over a few months. They begin in October. The treaty is signed in December. The negotiations are held in London, in Downing Street. The British are on home territory. The British delegation is made up of the big beasts of the cabinet, Lloyd George, Churchill, Birkenhead, Austin Chamberlain. Not only are they political heavyweights with long political careers behind them, they also have extensive experience in negotiations, in treaties, in in international treaties. They've just come from the Paris Peace Conference. By comparison, the Irish delegation are relatively inexperienced. The Irish delegation is headed up by Michael Collins, who had been a senior figure in the IRA and Minister for Finance during the War of Independence. It also has Arthur Griffith, who we mentioned earlier, you know, this old Sinn Féinor, the original Sinn Féinor, who proposed a dual monarchy between Britain and Ireland um, and kind of converted, semi-converted to republicanism. And then as well as some other political figures, the big person who's not on the delegation is Eamon de Valera, the president of the Irish Republic. And the fact that de Valera didn't go was a source of political controversy for the rest of his career until the 1970s. So there are red lines on both sides. I think what I would say is that the British government managed to stick to their red lines. The Irish delegation didn't do it as well. There was confusion over whether or not the Irish side had full plenipotentiary powers to sign a treaty, whether or not the treaty should have been referred back to the cabinet in Dublin for a decision. But ultimately, in the heel of the hunt and under the apparent threat of immediate and terrible war within three days if the treaty is not signed, the Irish do sign the treaty early on the morning of the 6th of December 1921. How do we get to the point where the island of Ireland was divided? Slightly confusingly, perhaps, this has already happened. This happens before the treaty. This happens under the Government of Ireland Act, which is passed in 1920, which might be understood as a fourth Home Rule Bill for Ireland and established notional governments in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland and parliaments in Belfast and in Dublin. Now, it's quite an interesting piece of legislation, actually, because in some ways it is politically irrelevant. You know, it's it's enacting a measure of home rule for Ireland, but we know that the majority of Irish people have voted for a Republican party. They're not interested in home rule. The agenda has moved on. But in another way, it's quite a clever piece of legislation because it sort of settles the Ulster question Ulster opposition to Home Rule was partly about a fear of being swamped in a Catholic nationalist Ireland. So by establishing a separate Belfast parliament, it kind of begins to park that question. Now, some of your listeners may think, isn't it a bit ironic, isn't it a bit hypocritical that Ulster Unionists threatened civil war, threatened you know rebellion against the Crown in 1912 because they didn't want Home Rule and now they end up having and working with Home Rule for Northern Ireland just, you know, less than 10 years later. But I think the Ulster Unionist position is that they don't trust the British government. They want to be in control of their own affairs. They don't want to have any part of Irish nationalism. 
And this is a way for them to have control and have some some sense of security over their own political futures. So Ireland is divided, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. It is six counties of Ulster and 26 counties of Southern Ireland. So six counties of Northern Ireland, 26 of Southern Ireland. So you have three counties of Ulster that don't make it into Northern Ireland. And those are the three counties that have Catholic majorities. And the Northern Ireland that emerges is deliberately chosen and designed and delineated in a way that will have the largest possible working Protestant unionist majority. So it has about two thirds of a unionist population and about one third of a nationalist population. So you do have a kind of stranded Catholic nationalist population in Northern Ireland and you have a a stranded Southern Protestant population. So you have minority communities that end up on the wrong side of this border. And the treaty momentarily kind of threatens to open up that question again. Certainly that's what the Irish delegation wanted. They wanted the question of unity to be on the agenda. But Lord George manages to placate the Irish delegation by promising a boundary commission that would revise the border and would allow for population and territorial transfer like was being seen across Europe in the aftermath of the Great War. So Northern Ireland predates the treaty Northern Ireland is momentarily threatened by the treaty, but the Boundary Commission doesn't play out in the way that is expected. And it is indeed the six counties that were established under the Government of Ireland Act that are still the six counties of Northern Ireland today. Do the people have their say uh, through any kind of vote? Nothing? No, I mean, there are elections to the... There's no plebiscite, there's no referendum. The Boundary Commission is supposed to look at the wishes of the inhabitants, as well as the economic realities or the economic, um, favourable economic conditions. But the way the Boundary Commission played out was that the wishes of the inhabitants were actually very rarely taken into account. And in in the event, the Boundary Commission report was suppressed because it was politically explosive for various reasons. And so the border was just left as it was. There was no plebiscite. There was no referendum. Part of the problem might have been, well, who gets to vote in a referendum? Is it only the people in the six counties? Is it the people in the nine counties? Is it the Mm. people in 32 counties? Who is the constituency that would be voting? And that's quite a complicated question because that then goes to which is the political unit that we're dealing with here. And Irish nationalists do not, did not. I mean, their view is that Irish unionists are really just, or Ulster unionists are really Irish people. And partition is a mutilation of the national territory and a mutilation of the nation. And any vote should be a 32-county vote, not a six-county vote. Nevertheless, as you've been describing, a treaty was negotiated in 1921 and this partition occurred. Whether people view that as progress or not is up to them, but it did happen. Howard, can you tell us about some of the people who were involved in those treaty negotiations that Quiver has mentioned, who've got blue plaques in London, and also what their roles in the treaty were. Sure, yeah, well, first of all, just in, in, in line with something you were saying there, one who hasn't got a blue plaque is Michael Collins on, on the Irish side. And, and I think in terms of you asking whether it was progress or not, well, obviously he thought so because he signed it, but, but the line that he came out with was that it gave Ireland the freedom to find its freedom if that can hmm. be uh, sort of yeah. understood as in it, it was it was a, it was a useful an incremental step. step to freedom absolutely yeah yeah so that, that was that was certainly um his view now Quiver mentioned the big beasts on the british side and yes indeed three of the four have got blue plaques 
David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, he's commemorated at Three Routh Road, just on the west side of Wandsworth Common. He was a fascinating and very skilled, as well as devious politician of, of the era, who was Prime Minister from 1916 to 1922. He was he was basically the, the, the war leader. He was he replaced Asquith and he prosecuted the First World War with renewed vigour. And I guess his role in the in the treaty negotiations was sometimes to sort of wave that big stick and, you know, threaten suppression and to wage fierce war in Ireland. And that threat, I mean, basically, the the treaty was signed under that kind of duress by the Irish um, plenipotentiaries. So Lloyd George came fresh out of the uh, Paris Peace Conference of of, um, 1919. So he had that enormous diplomatic experience sort of recently behind him. He's a kind of, as I say, a fascinating figure all round. I'm described as a sort of political chameleon. He starts off as a radical liberal. He's behind the people's budget of 1909, which Cleaver referred to earlier, which is, starts to sort of put taxes onto onto the landowning classes and causes great uh, anguish uh, to them. But he's also he, he's accused of things like insider trading. There's a, something called the Marconi scandal, which he was uh, involved in. And also, uh, more notoriously, I guess, um, cash for honours. He was pretty shameless about selling honours. I mean, that kind of had gone on before and, and I guess since. But he didn't really have his own political party because by the time he's prime minister in, in 1916, he's leading a coalition. And that coalition goes on after the 19 election. There's something called it's referred to as the coupon election, where he's leading this coalition, which is almost um, entirely made up of, of conservatives or largely made up of conservatives. Uh, so he's sort of politically uh, shifted quite a lot. One of his colleagues was Winston Churchill, who, of course, is, goes on to become the war leader in the Second World War. In, in 1921, he is the Secretary of State for Colonies. Of course, Churchill had this long career before uh, the Second World War. In fact, I think he held something like eight cabinet offices. And of course, it was it was quite a controversial career. I mean, things like uh, Gallipoli during World War one, which were sort of laid possibly a little unfairly at his door. So um, he's in the room. Churchill's blue plaque is at uh, 28 Hyde Park Gate, which was his London base uh, much later in his in his life. On the, on the Conservative side, you have Austin Chamberlain, who was the leader of the Conservative Party and had the dubious distinction of until William Hague being the only leader of the Conservative Party who didn't become Prime Minister. So that was him. But I think the most interesting figure and perhaps the pivotal one was Lord Birkenhead, born F.E. Smith, Frederick Edwin Smith, a lawyer turned politician. He's the Lord Chancellor. Now, as a politician, his sort of USP really was as an opponent of home rule. He's a strong unionist. So the fact that he's in there could be perhaps compared to something like it being Nixon who created detente between the United States and China. It had to be a Republican president who did that in order to take the people with him. So Birkenhead's presence, because of his strong unionist background, is really important because he's in there and he gets to sort of try to take people with him. In fact, I mean, he doesn't do that. He gets accused of treachery. He forms a quite unlikely friendship with uh, Michael Collins. And in fact, he says to Collins at the signing of the treaty, he says, this is signing my political death warrant, to which Collins replies, well, this may be signing my actual death warrant, which, of course, turned out to be true. So he's in many ways a vital figure and a fascinating one, too, as as an individual. I mean, he was a very big drinker. In fact, he died of cirrhosis in, uh, in 1930, and he was sort of Winston Churchill's closest sort of political 
friend. So as I say, uh, he's really the uh, pivotal figure on the British side. And his plaque is at this um, rather appropriately exuberant London house, 32 Grosvenor Gardens, which is uh, down near Victoria Station. After Howard's explanation of all those roles, Quiver, when was the Irish Free State actually established? Well, the, the treaty is, is signed on the 6th of December 1921 and the Free State formally, legally comes into existence one year later, so on the 6th of December 1922. In the intervening period, you have a provisional government which, as it happens, is responsible for prosecuting. There's a civil war in Ireland which erupts in June 1922 and so the provisional government is dealing with that conflict. The civil war, I should say, is provoked by the treaty and the opponents on the during the Civil War are pro-Treatyites and anti-Treatyites. And so those who, who support the treaty participate in the political structures of the Irish Free State. Those who don't, for varying lengths of time, do not participate in those political in that political system. The big stumbling block is the oath of allegiance that representatives in the Irish Free State, political representatives, members of parliament, have to take to the king, to the crown. So that is one of the big stumbling blocks. So the Irish Free State is established, formally established on the 6th of December 1922. Its first leader is W.T. Cosgrave, who after the death of Collins, Collins is assassinated during the Civil War in August 1922 on a trip to his home county of Cork. So it's in the kind of political vacuum that is there after Collins's death that W.T. Cosgrave moves to take the political helm. Um, and he's quite an interesting figure. You know, he has a long experience in in local government, in Dublin Corporation, even prior to the rising. He is somebody who came from a pre-rising Sinn Féin tradition. Um, so he kind of becomes republicanized like most Irish nationalists do after the rising. But he was drawn into politics through a more, I mean, it's still a radical route, but it's maybe on the moderate end of radicalism, if that makes sense. And certainly that Cosgrave government um, which has other, you know, leading political figures, including Desmond Fitzgerald, including Kevin O'Higgins, including Ernest Blythe. That is a government that is, I suppose, more comfortable with some of the imperialist or the pro-British trappings than their political opponents were. I mean, Kevin O'Higgins, who was assassinated himself in 1927, but he attends cenotaph ceremonies, for example, in the 1920s. He had a brother who was killed during the Great War um, and he lays a wreath at the cenotaph, which was quite unusual and became very unusual afterwards. Successive Irish governments didn't attend the cenotaph for a long, long time. And that Cosgrave government uh, is in power for 10 years until 1932. So what what did this independent Irish political system go on to do after uh, the establishment of the Free State? Well, in 1932, there is a change of government, and this is when Fianna Fáil comes to power. Fianna Fáil is the political party that is established by Eamon de Valera in 1926. De Valera was an anti-treatyite. He opposed the treaty, made some quite bloodthirsty speeches in the spring of 1922 about wading through the blood of fellow Irishmen. The Civil War, though, he's kind of displaced, I suppose. Militarists come to the fore, military men. So de Valera really has to sort of rebuild his political career. He's in the political wilderness in the 1920s. And he founds his own political party in 1926, which is a Republican political party, which remains opposed to the treaty, which remains committed to the ideal of an Irish Republic. But in 1927, de Valera and his fellow elected Fianna Fáil representatives take the oath of allegiance to enter the Doyle. 
this is ironic. They fought a civil war five years before that because the oath of allegiance was so unpalatable, was so impossible for them to stomach. De Valera does do, you know, he moves the Bible to the other side of the room when he's taking the oath, this kind of elaborate political ceremony. But he is now kind of back inside of the political system. And he comes close to forming a government in, 19, in that 1927 election. It, it doesn't happen. He can't quite get the negotiations there with Labour. But in 1932, he does form a government. It's a minority government with Labour support. But he goes on to win successive elections. And that Fianna Fáil government and De Valera, in fact, are in power for 16 years unbroken. It's remarkable. And what De Valera does in power is show proves the truth of what Michael Collins said the treaty could do. It gives the freedom to achieve freedom. In the 1930s, De Valera embarks on a step-by-step dismantling of the treaty, bit by bit by bit, culminating in the new constitution in 1937, which is a republic in all but name. That is where the name of Ireland is, ERA or Ireland. It doesn't go so far as to declare a republic, partly because, or largely because, for De Valera and for Republicans, <clears throat> they are anti-partitionists and they believe that only a 32-county republic is the only true republic. So that's why they don't go and do that in 1937. But that then happens in, in 1949. There's an exit from the Commonwealth in the same year, isn't there, in '49? Yeah, the Commonwealth's structures are part of the system that De Valera uses to dismantle the treaty. There are important kind of political developments in, in the Commonwealth. The Statute of Westminster allows... Commonwealth countries to repeal any any measure passed by the Imperial Parliament, as it were. By the time that Ireland exits the Commonwealth in 1949, there is a change of government by that point. So it's a coalition government, a kind of a very curious coalition government made up of what was the pro-treaty party or called Fine Gael by this point, as well as some really radical Republicans who were who were opposed to de Valera's political party in the 30s, but then formed their own political party in the 40s. It's very much a kind of patchwork coalition. But one of the things that they do is declare the Republic of Ireland and exit the Commonwealth, partly because I think it is believed in certain circles that you can't remain in the Commonwealth if you are a republic. India hasn't hadn't at that point shown that that was possible. So there's a belief that being a republic is incompatible with being in a Commonwealth. So it's a choice of one or the other. And they choose to exit the Commonwealth. There are some other events as well, which we should probably touch on. The uh, mutual accession to the EEC in 1973. That's a coming together of Anglo-Irish relations, at least. Well, yeah, I mean, the Irish economy is heavily dependent on Britain during for much of the 20th century. I mean, the Irish economy is is a very agricultural economy and the chief export market is Britain um, for Irish agricultural produce. And economically, it would not have been possible for Ireland to go into the EEC alone. The Irish currency is tied to sterling up to the 1970s also. So there's all sorts of reasons why it would not have been politically or economically feasible for Ireland to go into the EEC alone or to remain outside of the EEC without Britain. Now, that's not to say Ireland is very interested in European integration and European cooperation from the 40s onwards. It sees Europe as a vindication of sovereignty. If Ireland is able to become a full member of of the European community, that is Ireland taking her rightful place in the nations of the world. So there's a very different attitude towards EEC membership from Ireland than there is in Britain, in which it's tied up in questions of imperial decline, you know, from the outset. So Ireland is 
part of some of the early applications, you know, where Diggall says no um, in the 60s, but then finally does accede to the European community alongside Britain in the early 1970s. And the European Union or the European community quickly becomes a really important political space for Anglo-Irish relations, but it also has a transformative effect on the Irish economy in all sorts of ways. And so reduces that overwhelming reliance on the British market for Irish goods. Which I'm guessing helped to engender the 1992 Anglo-Irish Agreement. Well, the Downing Street Declaration of 1992, the Anglo-Irish Agreement is 1985. Both of them are incremental steps, I suppose, in what we now understand as the peace process for the Northern Irish Troubles. What common EU or EEC membership allowed Irish politicians, diplomats, officials and their British counterparts do for much of the troubles was to maintain communications and to have regular dialogue on the fringes of European summits, of, e- of European conferences and communiques without the pressure and the limelight of, you know, a bilateral, a bilateral or a state visit. Bilateral visits did happen, but it was more the European structures that allowed for those dialogues to take place. And it meant that they weren't so high stakes. It meant that there was regular communication as opposed to the whole agenda being taken up of on the Northern Irish question. And from 1985, again in 1992, famously in 1998, in the Good Friday Agreement, then we have the St. Andrews Agreement. So you have a whole series of agreements that are signed between British and Irish governments to attempt to resolve the Northern Irish troubles and embed, secure, embed, support a peace process in Northern Ireland. The issue of the Irish land border in the Brexit referendum campaign was discussed, I believe, but it didn't gain a huge amount of prominence. And I I think we need to touch on that a little bit, don't we? So could you talk about that? Yeah, the Irish government was very alert very early to the the, the problems that might be posed by by Brexit. Um, They embarked on a, a very extensive diplomatic campaign. I remember the then Taoiseach Enda Kenny coming and campaigning in England, well, in England, I presume he went to Scotland and Wales as well, campaigning for Remain. Former Prime Ministers Tony Blair, John Major, both made public statements warning of the destabilising threat if the referendum were passed to Northern Ireland. The incompatibility of what Brexit was promising to the political structures and the peace process in Northern Ireland was very clear to anybody who was familiar with it. But I guess it, you know, the fact that it didn't gain much traction in the public debates and the media debates around Brexit reflects a broader lack of interest, lack of knowledge of Northern Irish history in Britain itself. I think, it, you know, it doesn't feature prominently on school curriculas. You know, this was a 30 years civil war in the United Kingdom. It's quite astonishing to me that it, there isn't a kind of a deeper knowledge of it. And, you know, I think it's fair to say Irish people are much better informed about British history than vice versa. But hopefully this podcast will help to turn that around a little bit. Indeed. It's, it's, it's interesting that I obviously did a history degree and went through the British education system. And, and I only found out about all this by reading a book about the Black and Tans. That's what got me into it when I was in my yeah. 20s. Other than that, it was actually a surprise to me to find out there was a thing called the Irish Civil War. You know, and that was yeah. uh, so, the, so I think that, that underlines what you're saying. Just to sort of conclude the podcast, really, Howard, Irish history told through blue plaques. This is a part of the way that we remember this joint history. And thankfully, it is reflected. Are there any other players from the story of the creation of the Irish Free State who don't have 
blue plaques and who you think should? Well, um, on the on the Irish side, there, there aren't any plaques at, at the moment, so that that is a bit of an omission, really. So, I mean, one possibility would be to mark the headquarters of where the, most of the Irish plenipotentiaries stayed during the treaty negotiations, which was uh, twenty two Hands Place in in Belgravia. The other possibility would be to mark Michael Collins. Now, he actually stayed somewhere else during the treaty negotiations, which was in Cadogan Gardens. Also, I mean, very interestingly, I discovered while doing the research for this podcast that Collins worked in London at the Post Office Savings Bank in Earl's Court while he was a younger man. So there must be addresses there. I mean, whether they survive or not, I'm I'm not yet sure, but that's something that that could certainly be uh, looked into. So those would be the obvious ones there. And as as a result of uh, my conversations with uh, Quiver before we did the podcast, we also looked at uh, another Irish leader from the uh, late 19th century, uh, who's Charles Stuart Parnell. He doesn't have a plaque either. So there there is definitely a possible address there, which is in Broccoli, uh, which we've identified. And other ones that we we might go for would be Constance Markovitz, who was the first woman elected to the British Parliament. Although as a Sinn Féin representative, she chose not to take her seat in, in 1918. And she, she's someone else who could possibly be uh, honoured with a blue plaque. How important a role do blue plaques play in publicly commemorating people whose work may otherwise be overlooked or forgotten over time? Well, I think they do have an important educational role. They act as a prompt for people to hopefully find out a bit more about, about um, those who are commemorated. And, you know, very importantly, they mark the link between people and place between a person and a particular building and locality. And I think that, yeah, they should be used to mark somewhat difficult histories, which some of this is undeniably, because it helps to provoke interesting conversations. And I think that's a, that's a you know valuable role that they can play. I think people can agree that we've certainly had an interesting and very detailed conversation today. For people who do want to get involved in nominating Irish political figures who were instrumental in establishing the Irish Free State or any other part of Irish history. How are they best to get in touch with English Heritage to put forward their case for a blue plaque in London? There are details on our website about how members of the public can nominate anyone for a blue plaque. Anyone with a surviving building in London who's been deceased for 20 years is is potentially uh, eligible for consideration for a blue plaque. And public nominations are the lifeblood of the scheme. So yes, do please have a look at the website, have a look at the detailed conditions and so on, and and, uh, and do send your uh, your ideas in. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for taking the time to talk to us about the founding of the Irish Free State and its 100th anniversary, and I hope people have really benefited greatly from your expert knowledge, both of you. So thank you very much for giving so much time to this subject today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we examine the story of Jewel Tower in London, a building you may be more familiar with than you realise. It's got round windows that you see in the wall that's facing the TV cameras. And I'm sure lots of people look at it. Ooh, I wonder what that is. And in this podcast, we will be telling you the answer. Thanks for listening. See you next time.